Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, Dice's podcast where we dig into the topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kulikowski, and I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including taking the temperature of the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technologists in a historically tight market, and much, much more. Our guest today is Sachin Gupta, who is the CEO and co-founder of Hacker Earth, a tech hiring platform that also offers a coding assessment platform, help with hackathons, programming tutorials, and more. A former developer himself, he has a lot of insight as Hacker Earth CEO into current hiring trends, including the skills that technologists need to succeed in this market. In this episode, we're going to talk about this current and really interesting moment in tech hiring and touch on everything from the utility of hackathons to the rise of Web3. Here we go. Yeah, let's kick it off. So thank you for being on the show. And um, as we were sort of talking by email back and forth before before this, um, a lot of companies and seems more companies by the week and so on have been announcing hiring freezes, including some really big tech companies. You got your Googles, you got your Metas and so on. And so I've, I've been, you know, for example, I gave a, a, a webinar talk to about 300 students at Simply Learn the other day. I've been talking to other technologists and there's a lot of sort of, I don't want to call it fear, but kind of uncertainty in the face of all these freezes and layoffs and things like that. So I'm just wondering, right. what skills should technologists emphasize during the hiring process if they're concerned right now that everything's sort of in a squeeze and they want to kind of put their best foot forward? Like, what's the best approach? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, before I can answer that, you know, I'd like to draw on the the difference in hiring between some of these large employers and and then you know the smaller ones and that is what's unique to some of these large employers is that they have the ability to hire for generalized skills uh you know they typically have infrastructure within the organization that allows them to hire smart people with strong fundamentals and don't necessarily need people to have specialized skills uh and hence you know when some of these large employers stop hiring or slow down uh, what the, the biggest impact that kind of happens, and you know, this is speaking relatively, is that there are more jobs which are coming in from smaller organizations that typically require people to have specific skills. So I think that's, in my opinion, you know, that's one fundamental difference that happens when large employers slow down or, or stop recruiting, that relatively speaking, the demand for specialized skills goes up, which means if you are looking for a job right now, you're more likely to be successful in getting getting a good opportunity if you're able to highlight your experience in specific skills. Uh, you know, you could either draw it from draw it on from uh, your education, or it could be based on some of the projects that you've worked on, any open source contributions, uh, you know, anything that you're doing on the side. But like technology should look for opportunities that are kind of close match to the specific skills that they have developed. And, you know, we'll probably end up talking more about specific skills and generalized skills a little later in, in the in the conversation. But yeah, if they're able to draw on that, highlight that more in their, you know, resume or whatever their online presence is, then it becomes easier for, you know, people who are still hiring to discover what we could call as a tighter match. And, and you know, I think that's one one way to kind of look at it. So, I mean, for example, let's say you decide to go out and learn some TensorFlow skills, some other kind of AI and ML related frameworks, and then that that would count 
in this example is kind of like one of those special that kind of specialized skill set or that specialized aim. That's absolutely um, yeah. So, okay. So yeah. So just to draw on that example, you know, uh, a large employer like a Google or a Meta, when they're hiring a data scientist, won't really care if you worked on TensorFlow or if you use some other technology. You know, as long as you can demonstrate the basics and the fundamentals of data science. But for a smaller employer, you know, the 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 ability to hire someone who comes with TensorFlow experience, assuming they are using TensorFlow, could make a host of difference, right? So you are much much more likely to get through the process if you have the ability to highlight that uh, in your in your presence, online presence. It, it seems a little bit so. You know, you have the larger companies like the metas and the app and the apples and so on there that are kind of adopting this mode of, okay, we need to be more efficient. We need to be more productive and so on. But smaller companies have always kind of been on that already. I mean, obviously when you're a smaller company, you have less budget, you need to hire people who are specialized and have the skills and kind of, you know, need to proceed forward, you know, and, and all of that. Do you think, I mean, do you think the tech industry as a whole that you think everything's going to kind of speed up? There's going to be more pressure on efficiency from here on out and productivity and technologists are going to need to kind of develop the suit? Or, I mean, are we at the beginning of like a, a acceleration almost in terms of pacing for like work and stuff like that? Uh, in some sense, yes. Uh, you know, it still needs to pan out uh, how acute this is going to be. But I can, you know, based on my conversations with people around, I can definitely tell you that. Uh, there is a lot more focus on efficiency internally, even at the big companies. It's always been the case in smaller startups. You know, you, you typically are understaffed there, but large organizations tend to have some fat. But even there, they're cutting down on fat, which means greater scrutiny, which means people need to justify the projects that they're working on. They need to demonstrate ROI. And in general, the pace has has gone up. But we should also bear in mind that, you know, the pace uh, uh, kind of sped up quite a bit immediately post-COVID. Like, you know, one of the biggest fears that people had entering into COVID is what's going to happen to productivity and, you know, developers love working from home. So we've already seen productivities kind of go up. So I don't really think there is a lot of room to go, you know, beyond that in terms of net productivity from an individual. But what organizations will focus on is the overall organization efficiency. Uh, so continue driving those productivity rates, but focus, put efforts on things that, you know, have tangible ROI. Do you think that's going to, I mean, in terms of how that's going to potentially impact the hiring side of the equation, I mean, as companies, you know, as these trends sort of proliferate and people orient towards this way, does that mean that we're looking at like more testing rounds, more interview rounds? Is it getting sort of more intense? Is there different types of hiring companies are doing? Are they looking at different things? Like, how is that? How do you see that evolving? Yeah, so a lot of things, you know, you kind of touched upon a lot of aspects on those in that question. So let me kind of break it down uh, just based on hiring process. Naturally, when you're, you know, hiring fewer people, you tend and tend to tend to become more uh, selective, which means, uh, you know, you want to do more rounds of interviews. Everybody needs to have a greater buy-in. Uh, the market's also changed a little bit, you know, because there's increase, sorry, decrease in demand. Uh, so there's a balance which is shifting. I wouldn't say it's shifted all the way, but there's a slight moderation now where, you know, earlier it was a supply-led market where, you know, as a developer, if you had the skills, you could get whatever you want. I think that's changing a little bit. And hence, all of these factors lead to greater, I would say, uh, assessment of sorts in the interviewing process. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, is one thing that that's kind of panning out. Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, some people that I've talked to recently, I mean, there's, it almost seems like a push-pull where for a while, especially at larger companies, you were subjected to, you know, the phone screener and like the phone technical interview and then like the panel interview and the whiteboard interview. And there was like all these steps. 
And then people were getting, you know, candidates were getting angry about it. And then it seemed like HR was trying to shrink it a little bit. And now it seems like I've talked to some people, it's expanding again. So it always seems like there's this tension there. Like there's this constant push pull towards it. It's just, and it's always interesting to see where it's going. Yep. Yep. No, to- totally uh, right on that. You know, the process uh, in large organizations. So one of the things, again, with large employers have, is while they recruit in large numbers, they also have the flexibility to be selective about the process, right? Because, you know, they pay top dollars and, and the push pull that you just spoke about is, is very true. Uh, you know, people want to put in multiple rounds of interviews. There's a lot of scrutiny. Part of it is also because they're hiring in such large volumes that they want a process that kind of ensures that only the best candidates that fit according to their requirement kind of get through. And hence, you know, they end up putting a, a much more uh, a lengthier process than ideally it should be. Uh, but again, uh, you know, we've not seen the same in case of smaller organizations that they, they make decisions faster. Uh, they have slightly easier processes while the scrutiny within the process within that interview would be greater because, you know, uh, it's, it's more focused on the skills. It's maybe less templatized. Uh, like I don't want to name, but you know, one of the large organizations that hires hundreds of engineers has like in every interview, there's like 20, 30 minutes on behavioral, uh, or core value, the alignment, right? Now you typically won't see that in a smaller organization. So you can go through the process much faster, but then focus on skills is greater. So the dynamics are changing for anybody who's out there looking for a job right now. Do you think, I mean, do small companies, I mean, all, all that kind of soft skill stuff, like the kind of teamwork, the empathy and so on. Like I know larger companies tend to have screeners for it. I mean, do small, smaller, I mean, you're just saying, I mean, do smaller companies do that as much? Or I mean, is there, is, I mean, cause you would think within small, smaller companies be even more valuable to have like good teamwork, good empathy, good communication, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I didn't mean, I didn't intend to say that they don't focus on that, but what I meant to say was, you know, these skills get evaluated for naturally in the process because, you know, the engagement between the interviewing panel and the candidate is, in my opinion, much greater in a smaller organization, right? Because again, you're not hiring for 100 people. So you don't need to have a process where, uh, you know, the person, so I'll give you one example. So it's more likely that in a small organization, the person who ends up interviewing is the person who you will be working with. So they can, you know, really assess softer skills while in conversation with you. But that may not be the case at all in case of a large organization. The person who interviews you, you may not even see them in your tenure at that organization, right? And hence a higher reliance on the process. Uh, so that's what's different. You know, smaller organizations tend to focus, but they do it naturally as part of the conversation. And some of the, you know, even the evaluation methodologies that you would see in smaller companies, it's a little bit more detailed. Uh, you know, even if they give a coding assignment, they actually at times want you to pair program with them. They want you to build out an entire software application that, you know, you could work with them. Now, you don't agree with the, the duration or the time that they expect people to spend on that uh, fully. I personally may not agree fully with it. But, you know, when you do a more involved, conduct a more involved assessment uh, process, you get to assess for these software skills as you're going through that that round. Yeah. And I mean, that sounds also like a good deal for candidates, especially ones who potentially want to work at a smaller company, because then you sort of get, if you're, you know, for example, if the hiring manager is interviewing you as the person you're going to be working with, et cetera, then you sort of get like, I imagine, at least in a lot of cases, you sort of get like a bigger hit, you get a bit better sense of the culture right there and whether you want to intersect with that culture, I think, which is, which is great. I mean, that's, um, it seems like people that I interview who work for bigger companies, you know, there, there's the team culture, there's the company culture, et cetera. And it, it's, it, there's always, it seems just there's a lot of uncertainty about like, oh, will I be a cultural fit sometimes at larger companies? And there's like kind of a lot of soul searching debate on the part of technologists. I mean, if somebody were to come to you 
and they were asking like, what's the best way to evaluate culture, whether it's a small company, a large company, it doesn't matter. I mean, what would you tell them? Like amidst, amidst all the rest of like the technical screeners and everything else they're doing, because culture isn't, I mean, it's hugely important in terms of where people want to work. I mean, oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the hardest questions to answer. I, I've thought about that over over the years. Um, <clears throat> and what I've kind of uh, landed at is it's very important to, you know, a culture is multifaceted at an organization like you know it, uh, organizations are like people and you know people are complex so there are a lot of things that goes into a company's culture but it is very important to understand what are some of the key key principles that you really care about and i typically bucket them into two categories one is traits or behaviors that you don't appreciate that are not appreciated at your workplace at all and then you know traits or behaviors that are some that you expect people to have uh, and, and it could even be a key indicator of success for the person in the role. So I'll give you an example. Um, when you're hiring junior developers, uh, one of the most important traits that you need to look for is learnability. Uh, and learnability in itself has uh, a few things rolled into it. Like, you know, are they curious? Uh, are they asking questions? Are they afraid of, you know, making a mistake? Now, these are some of the things that would also translate into company's culture because you typically want people to, you know, collaborate with each other. So a junior person would rarely lead a conversation. They're, they're the ones who are asking questions. The, but if they're not even of the personality of where they feel comfortable going and raising their hand and saying, hey, I want to talk about this or I am not clear on this, then you know they, they would not largely, they would not fall within the larger culture. So your larger culture can have derived traits or personalities based on the role that you're working on. Another example of this, if you're looking at a senior engineer or a lead engineer and collaboration is a key piece, you want to see, are they able to collaborate with, say, non-technical people? So when you give them a problem statement, you would assess uh, for whether they are asking only technical questions or are they also asking for, you know, the business questions right? because they will have to work with business teams, right? And that's how you kind of assess for these things. So um, in my experience, uh, the best way to do it is to come up with function-specific interview questions or assessments, which also cover for these traits rather than giving people separate scenarios where you ask them, okay, how would you collaborate? Because, you know, it's easier to game that, right? Like when, when you know I'm specifically being assessed for collaboration, you can game that. But when you're assessing them on their core skills, but you're interlacing these traits in your type of questions, then you would see real responses come out because that's when the person is unconsciously or subconsciously answering those questions. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's it's... It's interesting too, just because some companies are also very good at kind of putting people in front of the panel of the team and kind of like inserting them right into the company's work life and everything like that. And others, you know, kind of, I mean, especially COVID obviously threw everything for a loop, you know, everything became a phoner, everything became a Zoom interview and so on. And then now companies have sort of, it seems like they're rebooting and they're trying to kind of, and do you think, I mean, now that offices are opening up more and so on, that we're going to see more people being invited into the office to kind of like interact with the team, et cetera. I mean, do you think that's opening up or do you think video calls and so on are kind of going to stay as like as seriously as they did during COVID? Um, well, uh, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things which you see a, a, a clear merit of, of either side. Uh, the merit of, you know, inviting people into your office and having the conversation there, apart from, you know, the fact that you can do like five or six rounds of interviews on one day. But like, even if we keep that aside, is the fact that when people step into the office, 
they instinctively get what the organization is about. You know, you could you can have on the side conversations like, for example, between two rounds of interviews, you could just get a peer of that person. If you know whoever they end up working with, if they were to join you just to have a casual conversation. And it's not even an interview. It's a bilateral exchange of, you know, thoughts and ideas and the interview, the person who's interviewing for the job gets to know what this company is all about. And then your teammates also get to see, okay, this person could potentially work with us, right? So it's a key indicator. You can't do those things over video, right? Like because everything is a structured, uh, scheduled meeting. Uh, having said that, the benefit of, you know, video interviews uh, is scheduling. It's much easier. You know, there's no time involved in travel. Uh, people can take interviews and and probably that's one of the reasons why you know was a great was a contributor to the great resignation that people had more flexibility to take interviews right so it kind of is beneficial on the candidate side uh, you know they can even in a busy work day it's easier to take out an hour and take one interview rather than setting out time aside for like a panel of five interviews on site uh, so i think the fact that interviews uh, remote interviews have their benefit and you know inertia is on that side like you've already become comfortable with the process and change is generally hard. I don't think, you know, things would change right away. It, it's going to be a slow, slow recovery back to the earlier process. That makes a lot of sense. Are, in your view, are a lot of companies still using hackathons? I was actually having this discussion with a student the other day who was wondering whether that was a good thing for like kind of getting to know companies showing off his skills and things like that. And, you know, hackathons were huge like a couple of years ago and they're still used. I'm just wondering if because you obviously see this through Hacker Earth. I mean, is there still like this emphasis on hackathons? Is it less than before? Like, what's the state of that right now? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the nature of hackathons is that it is typically, uh, they are, uh, uh, you know, a company looks at hackathons as a medium to engage with talent community, mostly on cutting edge technologies or new work that they're doing. Like, you know, you wouldn't see a company doing a, uh, let's say a java hackathon to build a typical web application because i mean you might still see people like using java but it's not to build a typical web application it's generally to evangelize the technology that you build and you know look at things uh, or or explore things which are slightly on the fringes which are uh, more innovative projects and, and i think that as a trend continues to be so we are seeing organizations across the board leverage hackathons to uh, you know, work on newer technologies to talk about exciting stuff that they're doing in, in a lot of cases. And this is, you know, particularly in Web3, uh, a lot of companies are using this as a way to even educate, you know, tell people what Web3 as a technology is about and, you know, why people should come in and participate and, and be part of that community. So it's a great engine, great vehicle, particularly for people who are early in their career. I absolutely recommend people, you know, being part of these hackathons. Of course, you don't have to go to hundreds of them or be part of hundreds of them, but pick and choose the skills, technologies that align best to your interest. And then, you know, just be part of these hackathons because it helps you network. Uh, it gives you the ability to, you know, learn, like, you know, you actually get to learn with your peers and whoever is kind of hosting the hackathon. And then you remember, I talked about the point earlier that now is the time to showcase your specific skills. Uh, so hackathon is a great example. You have a conversation with a recruiter and you tell him or her that, hey, I participated in this hackathon. I built this interesting project. This is what I did. You know, go check it out. It's an immediate proof point that a lot of uh, engineering folks actually respect. Oh, okay. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, at least at least in my head and at least from talking to people, it seemed like a lot of hackathons were still focused on the more, the you know, like Python or, or JavaScript or whatever. But the, the fact that it's focused on kind of the, the specialized and the cutting edge is really fascinating. Um, you mentioned Web3. 
And it's interesting because there's all sorts of databases that we use to analyze job numbers, like the you know BLS and uh, Lightcast, which used to be MC Burning Glass until a couple of weeks ago, and so on. And all the and like a lot of components like blockchain and so on, you can sort of watch jobs rise and fall. But Web three, as you know, kind of as a term and as you know, kind of a hiring point for companies, is not something that it seems like it's a little murky. I mean, are you seeing a lot of traction? Like do a lot of companies are they hiring specifically for like web three sort of skills or is it something where they're kind of looking to the far horizon, but they're not actively doing anything about it? like what's, what's your feel on that? Cause that's an interest. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating area right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a fascinating area. And you know, if, if uh, what they're prophesizing is going to be true, then it will be web three, right? We are in web 2.0. Uh, web three is, is the next uh, frontier in that sense. Uh, so what's happening right now is uh, more than recruiting, I think the companies which are, you know, leading this change, leading this, driving this wave are very focused on today on creating a talent community. Uh, so more than hiring, they want people to become part of it, uh, to, you know, look at different blockchain technologies, to see how the applications could be applied, like, you know, solutions can be built using the technology and solve some of the real world problems. So less lesser focus on active hiring, more focus on building out the talent community. Uh, when it comes to, and, and, they're, and while in absolute numbers, you may not see that pan out in all the census and the surveys because, you know, obviously it's, it's a smaller fraction of the overall tech community. It is one of those, I would say, paradigm shifts that are taking place in the tech community today. Uh, five years out, this would be a very well-established vertical. Uh, you know, just like data science came out from the fringes and today it is something that cuts across almost every organization. Like every organization I see who has a tech workforce is hiring for data scientists because it's a very natural extension of, of you know, what you do in, in software. So I think Web3 has the potential of becoming that because of how our engagements with the web is changing, right? It's more interaction driven and less your visual and text, which has traditionally been the case in case of Web2. Uh, so that's what's happening with the newer companies. The older uh, or the bigger players I think that they're still going to take some more time unless you're like Meta, who's hedging your entire future yeah. on that, then it's a different thing. Uh, but we'll see, say, it'll take some time for other players, other companies to chime in. I mean, Meta's betting, I mean, I, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but something like $2.5 billion a quarter on like their future labs. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's completely insane. The um, yeah. For people who want to be part of that talent pool or that 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 talent community, I mean, is is it all about learning the block? I mean, obviously blockchain, but I mean, what, are there other technologies involved? I mean, like somebody who's really interested in this, what they what should they be looking at in terms of skills to to pick up? Yeah. Uh, so first, I would recommend go read the uh, blockchain hyperledger uh, uh, research article that that's out there. You know, the one that set the foundation because it's very very important. To understand what this all is about, uh, then there is a course uh, in MIT uh, by I'm forgetting the the name of the guy. He's he's uh, currently I think the Treasury Secretary, uh, and he talks about and I, I can send this with you, uh, send, share yeah. this with you later. Yeah. But he talks about cryptocurrency and what does it mean. You know, it's very important to understand what this is all about uh, before you jump in technically, right? Because uh, in technology, you know. It's important that you relate to it. Um, I've seen people who just get, you know, web application development. There are people who just get data science. And then there are people who, who just want to do, you know, backend stuff. And somewhere it's, you know, it, 
it's not like they haven't been exposed to the other technology. It's just that they na- they have a natural affinity to it. So understand what this space is all about. And once you develop that understanding, uh, it's it's important to, you know, kind of... So what's happening is there are a lot of blockchains out there who are kind of building out the horizontal infrastructure. It doesn't really matter which one you pick on. Uh, I think maybe go with the one which is the most popular, has the has the larger community, because if you get stuck, you know, you'll be able to get resources. So look up those and then just, you know, go with that. It, we, there's a lot of noise out there. A lot of companies are doing different things. You don't need to go after each one of them. Understand the basics and then pick one or two stacks and then just, you know, continue building skills on that. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. It's... um it's just fascinating because I mean, there's so many technologies. I mean, they hear about all the time, you know, web three, web three, and they, they, you know, they know blockchain, they might own some crypto, et cetera, but they, um, they're, they're not really sure where to start. So it's always interesting. Yeah. I mean, start with the basics. I mean, that makes, that makes total sense. Um, so, I mean, there, there, there's this focus on, you know, specialized skills as the differentiator, you know, in terms of getting a job and so on. I mean, in terms of focusing on fundamentals, I mean, the other question I get a lot, and I'm sure you see this kind of, cause you have this, this incredible overhead view of everything. Um, you know, they ask, I mean, should I study Python, you know, principles of, you know, software development, et cetera. And like, especially for people who haven't quite fully decided what they want to do yet, they haven't discovered like that passionate thing. Um, what would, I mean, somebody who's like 18 or 19, they want to get into tech, like kind of what's the advice, like in terms of, especially for the fundamentals aspect before they get specialized, like how, how should they approach it? I mean, what do, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an age-old question, by the way. Yeah, uh, we, we had the yeah. same question ourselves when you know I was graduating in computer science way back in 2012. Um, but what has changed in the last three decades is uh, the intensity of this doubt has become sharper and sharper. Because if you go back, uh, you know, three decades, uh, the pace at which technology was evolving was much slower. You know, Java and .NET became like these behemoths on which the entire world was running. And, you know, that's true to a large extent even today. Uh, uh, and then, you know, C and C++ when you're operating closer to the to the operating system uh, or embedded systems. And that kind of, you know, uh, was the fact for a very long time because the pace at which things were changing was slower. Uh, and one could, you know, develop a, spe- a specialization in say one technology and and still get gain be gainfully employed employed for many years uh, but now that's changed you know i think in the last two decades we've seen some paradigm shifts uh, the advent of you know obviously web applications was one when the entire ecosystem moved away from desktop to a web and web allows you a browser allows gives you a lot more flexibility right like initially we just started by hosting content and images and and your usual stuff but now there's so much processing that goes in your chrome browser like you wouldn't even have an idea somewhere i feel your local system processing is primarily 80 percent in some cases 80 to 90 percent of compute is being taken over by chrome that's the amount of processing that's happening on the browser. So that was one paradigm shift, web application, uh, web-based application development. Another was data science. Uh, like I said, you know, it went from the Googles of the world producing petabytes of data to every other company producing at least you know, terabytes of data. Uh, another one that's taking shape as we speak is blockchain and Web3. So as a new graduate, you're 18 year old, you're thinking about what do I do? First and foremost, go master the fundamentals. Because even though if there are paradigm shifts, the underlying basics remain the same. Without that, your foundation isn't strong enough. Having said that, when you, you know, and, and the good part is you end up doing it, you know, courses, there are like enough things around you that you can uh, do to get, get the fundamentals in place. But then I would also suggest 
look at one of those paradigm shifts and see who, what do you relate to. Like I was just referring, right? Like there's a natural affinity. And then go do stuff in that. And this could be a side project. This could be a hackathon you participate in. This could be a GitHub repository that you contribute to. And the objective may not be to become an expert in that, but develop a meaningful amount of knowledge. And this will give you an edge, right? Because uh, it's it's if, if you are a data scientist and you can also, or let's say not a data scientist, but you are very well-versed with data science as a principle and you're a great software developer, you suddenly widen your horizon significantly, right? So I would say build the basics and then align yourself to one of these paradigm shifts and develop some expertise there. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, it's sort of like the generational perpetual thing. Everyone runs into these, these issues. They always kind of confront these, these things. Um, do you think, I mean, the other thing too, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of recruiters. I talk to a lot of technologists. Do you think the, the tech industry is getting better about hiring people, about finding the right talent, about sort of positioning it in? I mean, do you think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of like finding truly great people? Uh I think it's one of those optimization problems that you can never fully, ha- we call it in, in computer science, it's an NP hard problem. Uh, so there is, there's no perfect solution and you can always get better. But uh, I think there are some organizations out there who've done a great job of building out a very strong tech hiring uh, process. Uh, you know, say somebody like a Stripe uh, that comes to mind right away or, or even a Square for that matter. Uh, they do, and there's some things that they do very well. They do a great job of talking about, of making sure that people who get into their hiring funnel fully understand what it means writing, uh, you know, working at that organization. I think that that's today people have so many opportunities that if you're just trying to compete on what you pay, then uh, you know you're gonna lose eventually. Uh, so there has to be a greater pull for people who are coming into, into your organization. So they do a great job of, of talking about it. Uh, the second is they have a very tight alignment between the work that you would do on the job and your interviewing process. One of the biggest mistakes one could make is like have an interview process that is disconnected to what the person is going to do at the end of the day. Uh, so you know they do create a tight alignment. And third, uh, which I've seen people you know have greater adoption for is, you know, not just looking at traditional signals of competency, like which school you went to, what companies you've worked with, but and being more open to people coming from unconventional backgrounds. Uh, if you look at MOOCs today, in the last uh, 10 years, there've been about 100 million people who have started, uh, you know, who, who've registered for these MOOCs, which means a lot of people are coming from unconventional backgrounds. And you'll be surprised that some of these guys are, are actually as good as your, you know, Ivy League graduates. Uh, but, you know, they do sometimes face, face that bias. So organizations which are more open in embracing people coming from unconventional backgrounds uh, are likely to get like, you know, a bigger pool of talent that they can work with. So those are some of the things that we've seen. I, at least I've observed some companies do well. But having said that, overall as an industry, quite a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems that, I mean, there's, there's been more, you know, if you, I mean, you're going to get tested, obviously, but as long, if you can demonstrate the mastery and the skills and so on, then your chances of landing the position, regardless of what your background is, seem to increase in not every circumstance. There's some companies that still, you know, are very rigid about degrees, but it seems like they're opening. I mean, even the larger ones, it seems like there's opening up, which is encouraging. I mean, it's good. So, yeah, cool. Um, thank you. This, this was an interesting talk. And that's it, folks. It's so cool to have a wide-ranging discussion that touches on everything from hiring at big companies to the rise of blockchain and Web3. Here are some key takeaways from the talk we just had. First point, 
There's a lot of economic uncertainty at the moment, and a lot of highly publicized hiring freezes and layoffs among some of the biggest names in tech. However, there's also a lot of demand across the country for all kinds of tech skills, especially among smaller organizations. Technologists who can emphasize their specialized skills have an advantage in the job hunt. So, with that in mind, look for jobs that match your unique mix of skills and experience. Second point, keep in mind that smaller organizations generally make hiring decisions faster. The hiring process at these organizations also tends to be less templatized. At large organizations, you might find yourself subjected to a lot of interviewing rounds, including phone screeners, panel interviews, and more. Prepare accordingly. The hiring process is often more of a marathon than a sprint, but also be ready for things to move very quickly if it turns out that you're just the right candidate. Third point, hackathons can help you network, improve your skills, and show off what you know to potential employers. Don't sleep on them as a way to attract the attention of companies and recruiters. And so we'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles, and for technologists, the best place to grow your tech career.